I mean, everything that was created, even the character that was built inside me to be just more prepared for any situation that comes next, I, you know, I would say that I'm, I'm ready for any challenge. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. On today's episode, you'll hear from Justin Smith, founder and CEO of Redaway Medical Waste Solutions. From his humble beginnings in Kentucky to his early career in finance and real estate, Justin's path eventually led him to launch Redaway, something he refers to as the happiest accident of his career. Throughout our conversation, Justin shared challenges he faced breaking into a highly regulated industry and how he embraced unexpected opportunities along the way. We discussed his passion for delivering exceptional customer service and how Redaway's commitment to meeting unique needs of their clients set them apart from the competition. Justin, thanks so much for making it over here today. Welcome to In the Thick of It. We're glad to have you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, tell us just kind of a little bit about yourself, your background. You grew up in Kentucky, bourbon country. We bonded over that a little bit when we when we talked uh, the first time a couple of weeks ago. What was it like growing up there? Yeah, I mean, Kentucky is a very laid back, very slow pace of life. But um, yeah, I grew up in Louisville, horse races and bourbon. Hopefully, thankfully, I didn't experience those till later in life. But um, it's a very, again, just easy life. We, people think of Kentucky, they think of, you know, farmland and things like that. I grew up in Louisville, which is um, just a big city. So for me, it was a pretty, just simple, it's funny, I want to go into my testimony just from church, but um it was just a great life. You know, I have a twin sister and I have an older sister and then my father and my mother. And I was kind of my my father's right-hand man. We did a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing, things you'd expect out of Kentucky. But um, yeah, it was great. I mean, we did have farmland later on down the road, but um, it was just a good opportunity experience of bluegrass. But yeah, love Kentucky. Uh, from there, I went to University of Kentucky, got a degree in finance and marketing. After graduating, I was kind of that typical 20-something where I didn't know what I wanted to do. So flipped houses for a year or two while I was getting my master's degree. That really kind of got my eyes open to more corporate world. So graduated with a master's degree, spent uh, two years as a financial advisor, 22 years old, selling stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to your dad's friends. They didn't necessarily trust me because they knew the kid down the street, not the, the man I was trying to become. So after that, um, real estate was kind of a passion for mine because my father did. So I was a real estate broker for a large company. That was 2008. Company went bankrupt. I got into healthcare. So from there, I worked with a company called Kindred Healthcare, and I was a executive training program to learn how to be a hospital administrator. So I was a hospital administrator in Dayton, Ohio, St. Louis, Missouri, and then came to Dallas and then ran the market. So long-term acute care is anything post short-term acute care, so post like your big hospitals like Baylor. So I ran anything after that continuum. And then after a couple of years, I realized that that wasn't necessarily the life that I wanted to live. You know, my wife and I were heavily involved in church. We had, we're a growing family. I didn't like the, you know, nights being away and potential to move to other cities. And that's when I really started to network. I found some investors through my church and then they were tracking my progress as a professional one day they can't called me and said, hey, we have an idea. Why don't we sit down? So we sat down for coffee. And just like people say, it started on a napkin. We literally brainstormed over coffee and the idea of Redway was born. And just to go into a little bit of that, there's a large company, which is kind of the gorilla out there that they do, uh, 
man, they're 12 billion worldwide. So they're a very large corporation and they really treat the small customers poorly. So our goal was to launch a service-oriented business where we specialize in the people that they didn't take care of. And it's been very well for us. And that was August 2013 is when I left Kindred. And then licenses and things like that, uh, first customers really really started servicing in that 2014 year. So kind of backing up, thinking about your story, yeah, you're flipping houses right out of college and you're a financial advisor. And that was actually a career that I had considered early on and, and decided it wasn't for me. With the financial advisor piece, that is very much a you eat what you kill and there's no salary. It's straight commission and flipping houses. You're same thing, basically. So it seems like you've really had a risk tolerant personality from the get go. Yeah, it wasn't I desired those things. They were kind of the opportunities that put in front of me and I wasn't afraid. It was an opportunity for me to kind of rely on myself. And not that I was one of those people that wasn't relying on other people, but I think my father, he started flipping houses. He bought his first rental house when he was in his 20s, married to my mom. And we we lived in, I don't know, 15 different houses in my early years, just because we'd wow. buy a rental, move. As soon as that was ready, we'd move into the next one. And that's just kind of what I saw growing up. So I think that kind of built this desire to kind of do things that required a little bit more of self-motivation, which was kind of building that risk tolerance to do those things. But yeah, financial advising, it was probably one of the only jobs that they were hiring for in Louisville, Kentucky at my age, because I decided to go really broad in my education. And because of that, I had to go broad in that first job. But it was a great eye-opening experience that I was not mentally or mature enough to go into that profession. That came with a little bit more of, we'll just say, overcoming roadblocks throughout those early careers. How did those experiences early on serve you starting right away? You know, I don't reflect much on that. I I reflect a lot on the character build of what they allowed me to do. I overcame a lot of objections. My first job as a financial advisor, it ended abruptly. Let's just say that for my lack of understanding corporate world. And then flipping houses, I needed that to fulfill that desire to do what my father, you know, was doing and to see if that was the road I wanted to go. And what I found is that I kind of wanted to to blaze my own trail, so to speak. So you go to Kindred where I was one of 30,000 and what desire continued to build up in me is I wanted to do something on my own. Now, I know that I have investors and I know that I have financial backing, but I wanted to see if my future person was this guy who could start a business, get it to profitability, and ultimately make that successful. I think that was the deep-seated desire that I got. And was it from childhood? Was it from this God-given character that he gave me? I think it was a combination of all those things, but learned a lot. And I'm thankful for those early years and those careers, even if they were unsuccessful. So talk to us about kind of the early days of right away. And one of the things you mentioned was going through the licensing process or forget what term you use, but sounds like it's very regulated and there were hurdles you had to jump through. What were those first six, 12, 18 months like for you? It was difficult in the fact that I didn't know anything about the industry. So I became a student again. I had to go back and learn everything there was about medical waste. All I knew from before I started was that I paid a really large bill to a service provider. 
who I never saw. So I had to go and I had to learn everything about it. And what I learned is it is very highly regulated on a federal and a state level. And the costs associated with it were astronomical. Insurance, you, you couldn't get insurance to, to do this type of business. So there was a lot of those hurdles that I had to figure out. And that forced me to rely on not only industry professionals, but people within a network that I was building to tell me, hey, this is how you go about getting insurance. Here's how but you go about making sure you have the right banking relationships. Those early, early years would have been a lot smoother if I had the right people in my corner. But I was figuring this all out. And I would say that the figuring it out is what gave us a lot of thick skin for the five, six-year grind that was the start of the business. And I take it that none of your investors really had experience in this space. No, no. They knew the financials of these big organizations, and they knew the way that these acquisitions happened. And, th and that's what attracted them to the business. You know, and I think they were wise in the fact that they saw a loophole in the service that, you know, we would eventually provide. And that being, if you were to look online, 99% of people were complaining about these big organizations. So it was like, man, let's get somebody who was passionate about people and passionate about taking care of individuals who has business acumen, and then let's build a platform around that. So we didn't know anything. We didn't know anything about what regulated medical waste was. We didn't know that when we started servicing for needles, that it would lead to specimens and that it would lead to drugs and eventually chemicals. And the whole world opened up for us in those first couple of months. I mean, we thought it was taking needles out of a hospital and gauze pads and things like that. But the world of medical waste goes to from your local labs to a barbershop, you know, because they use needles. So we've kind of uncovered in our niche a way to service these people that didn't know they actually needed a service. So it's very eye-opening in those early years. That's interesting. I'm going to put some words out there and see yeah. if this resonates. I, in the very early days of starting my business, I call it the happiest accident of my run with the company, completely stumbled into something that changed the trajectory of the organization. It kind of sounds like you had some happy accidents along the way. You found some opportunities that you didn't really know were there. Is that the right way to look at it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the accidents themselves, I think because we had this desire to succeed and to figure it all out, we'd get a call about something. We wouldn't know what it is, but we're like, yes, we'll handle that. But we wanted to make sure we did it right by the letter of the law and we wanted to make sure we did it right by the customer. So when you put those two things together, you're not going to do it wrong. Then it was figuring out the easy things, the, the rates and the contracts and things like that. But then it goes back to who are those people that were in our corner? And we had those right people that we were figuring out along the way. I think it's so important to listen to what the market is telling you and what they want and what they need. When I was in high school, I worked at a retail shop and there was a rule, there was a piece of paper that got set out next to the cash register every day. And if somebody came in and asked for something that we didn't have, not that we were out of stock, but something that we just didn't carry, we had to write it down on the sheet. And if my boss heard somebody ask and he didn't see you go write it down, he was on you. I think it was a good early lesson as a youth of, hey, it's really important to listen to what your customers are telling you they want. Yeah, and, and we weren't afraid early on to say, we don't know the answer, but let us find it for you. You know, and when you're dealing with a Fed level and state level, you have resources that you can use. 
But the truth is, it was so gray in a lot of those areas that we were just really listening to how we service best. And that really got us to the point where we were able to answer questions based off the needs of the customer instead of just regulation. We were following the regulation, but because of those gray areas, it was like, man, how, how do we really meet the needs of the individual? Yeah. And it was good for us because we're contrary to the industry. And by that, I mean, it's a very contract heavy industry. The reason we can't, you know, the reason I'm not retiring today is because every single individual has a contract and these contracts are five years locked. If you want to get out, you're paying 50% of the remainder. We don't do that. And the reason we don't do that is because we want people to choose to stay with us. Every single day, we're earning the trust of our customers. So in those early years, when we were trying to take these customers away, I mean, that was a huge selling point for us. So us figuring these things out and servicing the customer and giving them a rate that's competitive, that also has foresight into what is going to be the geopolitical climate going forward. It was all of us thinking forward. So yeah, there's a lot of So that's guessing. that's really interesting. No contracts month to month. Well, it was it, we have contracts for liability reasons and to set rates and things like that. But in those earlier years, it was you can get out 30, 60, 90 days. And we use that as leverage to negotiate. Now, bigger contracts, and we bought people out like AT&T, we'd buy out their contract, but then it would be unwise of us to not put a 50% buyout on there because we could front the money they could leave. So there was a lot of those things that we did in the beginning to present well as the market leader in service, and that included contracts. That included the way that we build. So a lot of those things we did contrary to these big organizations. Is your business pretty capital intensive? Like when you spin up a new customer, is there significant investment that goes into that? Yeah. Quite Outside a bit. of just the time? Yes, especially in those early years. And obviously with unit economics, we got really good at it. But yes, I mean, to put our first truck on the road, I think the first time we serviced a customer, it cost me $5,000 and we made 50. So there was a lot of things. And I know it's like, it was just kind of a bad story and I'll give it to you real quick. So service to customer. Our first customer was actually in Houston, Texas. So we used a little transit vehicle. So it was just me at the time. I drove down, serviced the customer. I got a hotel room, spent the gas, had the truck, one box of medical waste netted us probably, let's just say 50 bucks. But I had to pay minimums at the processor. I had to pay extra for these supplies and all that stuff. And I think when I look back, it was about $5,000 to service one customer. And it's like, man, we really need to scale quickly. So Every single person that ever came in our organization, especially in those early years, we were all salesmen. We had to be. I mean, we the only way for us to succeed was to be able to cover all those startup costs, which were significant. I think like most business owners, your first few customers, your first few projects, if you're in a project-oriented business, you kind of have to almost give away a couple of them because you need the reps, you need the experience. And I think it's so cool for you that you actually did that first job because it gives you a perspective that you wouldn't have had sitting back in the office in Dallas. Yeah. You know, we hire a driver today, which they are our most important employee that we have because if we don't serve the customer while they leave, right? And if we are the easiest contracts, it's important for us to maintain that. So they're super important. And it's important for me to be able to go to them and say, hey, I know what you're feeling right? I've done this. I know what the customers are going to say. I know how it feels when you're on the truck and you get a flat tire. 
I know how it feels when, you know, you're running up against pickups that have, you know, there's going to be closures or when you're stuck in traffic. All of the variables that make our job difficult, we've all experienced. Myself, my number two, everybody that we've promoted, we kind of promote through the ranks. So a driver is ultimately, we're priming those individuals to be leaders in the organization. Talk a little bit more about that. It's a very tight labor market right now. Labor is in short supply and, and high demand, and so many organizations are suffering because of that. How are you finding people? And it sounds like you don't just need somebody that can get behind the wheel and, and drive a truck. Like There's a personality, there's a gifting that they have to have to be able to live up to your level of service. How are you finding those people, and how are you keeping those people? Yeah, so finding them, we, um, we've been very fortunate in finding the right folks. And I believe that it is God's sovereignty that we have this just incredible team of individuals. But we ask our folks first, like, hey, do you know anybody that's looking for a job? And our first five or six hires, these were college graduates, four-year degree. They have experience, whether it was in ministry or in some kind of post-college job, and they were looking for something different. And what we did was we paid really well. We are $5 more than the market. We provide full benefits and we pay the premiums on a high deductible plan. We give a lot of other benefits. I mean, we pay bonuses even during pandemics. So there were things we did to show our folks that we really cared for them. But I think it also went to the character of the individual that we were hiring on the beginning. We hire for character and that has really served us well because these people believe in the mission that we are working towards. They believe us when we say, hey, look, we want to train you. You have plenty of opportunity down the road. So it was myself and then the now COO, who is my friend and partner. Our first hire, that guy ended up being a market lead in Austin when we launched the Austin market because he knew the system. He knew what we were all about. We put him down there. We gave him a great opportunity. That individual eventually became a compliance officer for us. So we were helping these people grow within this. And I think they saw a future. And it's hard to say that when you're a, a driver, we call them customer service reps. It was hard for them to see that. But as the organization grew and more opportunities came, we wanted the people that were already there to be the ones to fill those spots. So you started essentially as a one-man shop. Talk to us about your size and kind of what you've grown to today. Geographically, you're not just here in Texas. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so we are 22 employees today. Started with just me on a truck. It was so a small transit van that you see. And then we've grown to fleet size. We have about 11 trucks on the road. And I'm talking about all organizations, which we can get into later. But we also have, man, um, I think we're projected on a run rate to do over $5 million this year. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it's really cool to see. And I, I think what's great is you have our customer service reps who are excited when they see growth numbers or when they we open new clients because they know that creates opportunity for them. And they know that that's what we need to be able to pay these bonuses that we want to pay and to pay for the premiums. It would break my heart if one day we're like, hey, inflation's gotten too high. Guys, I'm sorry. We have to we have to stop paying the premiums on these insurance. Those were things we said in the beginning. We said, this is what we're about. We can't be about God and people and family and not do the things that we said we wanted to do. So we are fighting every day and every customer means something. One customer that we make $100 a month 
versus one where we make $100,000 a month. They all mean something because they pay for something that's important to our employees. One of the things that we talk about around here, especially in our, our sales group, is that nickels and dimes add up to dollars over time. So you can't overlook the small ones. And we're in the professional services industry. You're in the service business. I think there's some some correlation. And mm-hmm. I also think that it's important to have a number of small, a number of medium, and a few large customers or projects going at any time. You know, sometimes you need some of that smaller business to kind of help even things out. And, you know, it's important to, to treat those customers just as well as the big ones. Yeah. Yeah. If we lost our biggest customer today, maybe 5% of our revenue. So we are very sustainable. And uh, again, it is so important that we treat everybody the same. Now, I mean, let's be honest. If my largest customer calls and they have an issue, we're going to jump quickly and it's going to be all hands on deck. But my hope is that as big as we get, that if the small person, the small customer calls, we're still giving them the same attention. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we know that that can't always be the case and we have resources that we need to deploy. But yeah, we do care about every single one. I remember in the very early years, we'd get what's called a PRN business, which is as needed which means we may drop supplies off and they may call us two years later for their only pickup. And those were wins. Those were big wins for us. I remember in the like the first month, we walked into a customer, we sold them right there, and they're like, we need you to take it today. And we were so excited to walk away with that 150 bucks, 150 $175 for that one pickup. I mean, those were wins for us. And they still are today. So That's great. You talked about how your drivers or your customer service reps, they get excited when you bring on that next new account. And it sounds like you've got pretty good visibility throughout the organization into how y'all are performing. Is there a cadence that you guys have with the whole company? How, how do you go about sharing that kind of information? Yeah, this is kind of a plank in my ideal. The busier I get, the more I rely on word of mouth instead of this big global message. Our desire as an organization is to get together quarterly. Unfortunately, with a trucking company, you can't pull guys off the road, right? So we do Zoom meetings and we do email updates. And that's where I just need to be tighter on getting that stuff out. But the good thing about us operating as a family is we are in constant communication. So everybody knows what's going on all the time. Now, there's some people in remote markets, which is very hard for us because we don't see them and they don't feel the vibe of what's going on at the corporate office. And sometimes those people feel like they're isolated on an island. And that's probably our hardest individual to you know feel a part of the culture. But they're also so important to us that they get what they need when they need it. So you've expanded beyond just the medical waste. Yeah. Um, and I say just the medical waste. Obviously, there was a lot more to it than that. But what are the other businesses that y'all have have expanded out into? Sure. So the medical waste business, we service nationally now through subcontractors. So we're not just the state of Texas. In fact, we're in New York, California, Atlanta, Florida, you name it. So we are very large on a national scale from for Redaway. What we found is that our customers really liked our secret sauce, let's say, and they wanted us to handle other things that they couldn't rely on their provider. So they would call us like, hey, can you handle our document destruction? So eventually we had enough interest. We launched a company called Texas Shred. We do confidential document destruction. 
that was profitable day one because we had so much interest from our current customers. Also, when you get into labs and to certain specialties with inside healthcare, they have hazardous waste. Now, hazard, think chemicals, think hazardous being flammable, ignitable, corrosive, radioactive, things like that. So we would come across these customers and we outsource that as a service. Eventually, we found that we had enough business to be able to bring that in-house as well. So that was Red Arc. That was the launching of our hazardous waste division. That's just a, a different animal on itself, but um, we have a good lead in that business and we're also very nimble. And when COVID hit and some of those things dried up, we started a COVID cleaning business under that because the license allowed it. So there are a lot of things that we're able to do with these three organizations. And then our most recent company is called Haven Pest Control or Haven Pest Solutions. And people are like, well, why would you, why would you do pest control? The answer is we feel like we do a really good job at servicing at B2B. And we have this character first, hiring the right individual to run these businesses mentality. So let's bring this direct to consumer. So we launched Haven in January of last year and we are now servicing homes. So that's been really fun for us. We have a good team there and um, that's the fourth business under, under what we've done. So you scaled through kind of a subcontractor arrangement which is not uncommon at all. How do you ensure that the level of service, that the quality is up to your standard when you're now sending work out to people that don't get a W-2 from you? Yeah, that was why we waited so long to do subcontractors. And there were many discussions at the board level that said, hey, is this really a good idea? We are going to lose a little bit of our brand. I believe that our brand is synonymous with the best service in the fields that we're in. And that was the risk that we took. Now, the reason we went national is because our customers asked us. They say, we don't like what we have. We are going national. We want you to go national with us. So we took that risk. One, to service the customer because that was always something that we were about. Let's do what the customer needs. So we did that for these customers. And what we decided was we need to have the right person handling that role within our organization. and. Thankfully, we've had individuals that are always quick to respond. They are always the one that goes to bat between the customer and the subcontractor. Do we have the best subcontractors? No, but we always have somebody waiting. We have backups upon backups, but really it is the communication that we have direct to our customer. And it's our back office that we built that allows the customer to see all of the things that we give our local customers on a national scale and really, from that point, it's just managing the relationship of the subs. Now, are they perfect? No, but our team is doing a great job of making sure that the brand stays intact. And I think you can ask any one of our national customers, and we haven't we haven't skipped too much of a beat. And you know, honestly, there's more screw ups dealing with subcontractors, but our reaction time is immediate, and the answer is always what we even did in the beginning, which is I don't know, but let me figure that out. And if we have to go to the subs and wait a day or two, we're constantly communicating with our customer what we're doing. So medical waste, hazardous waste, pest control, you're dealing with regulated substances, for lack of a better term. And there's compliance that goes with each of these things. Have you been able to take the things that you've learned in the compliance of one and apply it to others? And are there other areas that you look at and go, hey, that's the next hill that we need to climb? Yes, 
So in hazardous waste, that's probably the most regulated. When I was in hospitals, they said for a nursing center, it's the most highly regulated. So let's focus time and attention there. But I think when you become good about compliance, the whole organization becomes good about compliance. So we've been good about being students of the game, which allows us to know how to tackle any of these compliance issues that come along. And it has opened up doors. Because we are so quick to respond to a customer, it's kind of been reactionary in the customers, in the businesses that we've started, minus Haven. But we have a long list of compliance-related and or service issues of things that we eventually want to do. Now, is it going to be wise? We don't know. Is it going to be something that we're going to embark on and, you know, put time and resources in? We don't know yet. But when the operational time and then the capital is there, you know, we do explore new things. And compliance is one of the main barriers to entry. Compliance is one of the main things that attracts us to a business. I mean, look, we're in waste and pest and the most unattractive businesses, but I think there's a lot that can be desired because so few people actually explore these. And the people that do, you know, it's archaic and there's a lot of things that we can do to improve it. Our technology package is better than any company I've seen. And a lot of people buy stuff off the shelves and tuck it into their organization. Ours is all proprietary. And this allows us to really speak to the customer because we came from their seat, not from a trash world. Or we came from the place of how do we service the customer, not how do we make the most money? And I think all of those things really gives us this nice branded package of service first, culture matters, people are really what's going to move the needle for us. Did I understand you right in that you guys actually have built your own technology stack to support the business? You haven't picked up off-the-shelf tools and integrated them together? Yeah, our primary back office that we've built, we call it Portal. It is kind of the heartbeat of our organization. We enter a customer with their rates and stuff, but it does talk to QuickBooks and it does talk to HubSpot and a few other of the products that we use. But everything is the heartbeat from this Portal system that we built. Really interesting. Yeah. It was a large investment for us. And I think it was one of those where we wanted to build something that had value, but value for us. Because, you know, if we start using everybody else's, we're no different than the next medical waste company. This really does set us apart. And I think the all the other companies out there that are using these similar products, that they're no different from each other. So... You know, the way that we look, the way that we dress, we're a swag heavy company. You know, we, you know, make sure everybody's clean cut and they have nice hats and you name it. That portal system that we built really does that too. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So you've been at this since 2013. So at this point, eight years almost. Yeah. Nine years. Yeah. What has changed for you in your day-to-day from back in 2013, 2014 to here in 2022? Yeah, I'm more of a spreadsheet guy and, you know, dealing with banks and legal than I was back then. I mean, that was all important. It's just more now, you know, and it's funny. I think I get more enjoyment on days when I get to go help service a customer or load a truck or, you know, go to a warehouse. I mean, those are the things that kind of made it fun. And that's where all the stories are. But yeah, I'm, I'm become more office oriented. I deal with those customers that are on the national level, just making sure that subs are good or relationships are good. So as we've grown, obviously there's going to be more layers, but we prefer to put money at the people that are direct 
to direct and face to our customer. So that's where a lot of those resources go. So myself and then the management team, we take a lot of the complaints or a lot of the issues. We are the ones take the monkeypox outbreak. We have to make sure that we and all of our partners know how to deal with that specific type of outbreak. So we're the ones communicating so that it's not bogged down on people that are below us. So like a lot of founders, you started being the one doing the work and sounds like you don't do a whole lot of that today. And my story is very, very similar. It was a one-man consulting firm and over time have kind of shed things and taken on others. When you look at the next few years to come, how do you think your job is going to change as the, the CEO? I don't know. I will say that I dislike being uninvolved. I like being involved in every single decision, not from a micromanagement aspect, from a, man, I didn't know we did that. In fact, recently we were doing an audit on some of our customers and I noticed that there was this large customer I, I didn't even know we had. And maybe it was timing or, you know, I just didn't celebrate it like we used to, but I was like, man, I didn't know that. And that really kind of affected me from, man, I, I get out of the day-to-day -day and I, I forget kind of how we were created. So I hope that there's a good cadence that is created on just understanding the day-to-day -day of the business that I feel naturally will get away from. You know, and we are not a meeting-heavy company. We will have meetings. You know, we have sales meetings every Monday. We have operational meetings, more impromptu. But, you know, we left corporate world because it was nothing but meetings. And now we are constantly in communication with each other. So it does, it's not as necessary. But, you know, there's a part of me that hopes we get into this better rhythm of communicating the big wins, the small wins, the big needs, the small needs, so that everybody is in the know, including myself, because, you know, I, I don't want to get away from what created us. I think you already kind of answered the question of what are the parts of the job you enjoy the most? It sounds like being in the action, being at the customer level is is that thing for you. What are the parts of the job that you enjoy the least? I mean, I think I've heard that 20% of your employees or customers take up 80% of your time. Those are the things that I, I just, I don't like to handle. I care deeply and so does our team about each individual, you know, but every once in a while you make a bad hire or an employee is, we'll just say wayward for a better, or lack of a better word. And dealing with that is never fun. It's never easy. And my job and my role is all about risk mitigation at this point. So I got to make sure that everything is done in a way to protect the company and protect the other employees. So those things are really what make my skin crawl. What did I miss? Did I miss something in this contract? Did I miss something in this hire? Did I miss something in this partnership that we have? Because if it creates a potential conflict or problem down the road, that was a miss on my part. And those are the things that I really hate dealing with. And partially because I blame myself. Like, man, I'm, I missed it on this individual. But now I gotta, I gotta deal with it. Are you still involved with all hiring? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think it's important for all of us because Intid, so it's Take Haven, for example, they just, we just hired a couple of techs. I'm not going to interview them for, you know, their technical knowledge, but absolutely every single manager should be interviewing them for cultural to see if they fit. And we, we had an interview a couple of days ago. And the first thing that I said to the person who runs Haven, I was like, do you see him as part of our team? 
And he's like, no. I was like, well, then he's not the right person. Did he meet all the technical skills? Yes. But he didn't meet the, hey, this is somebody I can sit in the airport with for four hours and be perfectly fine. The old airport test. Man, we're very much on the same page with that. So as you look back over these years, what are three or four things that that you look back and go, man, this was a key to our success and growing to this point? Man, that was all hires. My first hire was my business partner. a guy named Caleb McGuire. He was a friend. We'd worked together outside when I was with Kendra and he proposed um, something for me where, where he was working at the time. And if I didn't ha- hire him, we wouldn't be here. I mean, not only did he have my back on everything, but he was a sounding board. He was a friend. You know, I think over time, we joke about it, we had four arguments. And, you know, it was one of those where it's like, man, this is, you know, in fact, our employees joke, mom and dad are fighting again. But it was one of those that we needed to have because we needed to have this back to equilibrium moment. And those were good for us in our relationship. But if it wasn't for him, if it wasn't for those moments, we wouldn't have gotten here. We are yin and yang to each other. He watches expenses where I'm a little more loose on that because let's go spend money and, you know, have fun with the team on Friday. It's like, well, you know, it wasn't as good of a month as we thought. So there's a good yin and yang there. So I'd say because we've trusted in our process of character first, hiring has been the the main thing that has launched us. I think the other is instinctually, we made some decisions that at the time we didn't know were right. But in the end, it ended up being very wise. And I'll give you an example. So disposal is something like we're a, a trucking, we're A to B company. The B part is disposal, where you have to literally render the waste harmless. So we haven't gone down that road. We've attempted a couple of times. We've looked at the numbers like it makes sense. But at the end of the day, like this gets us out of our core and it creates more risk for the organization. So those types of things, whether it was God's sovereignty or if it was just us making the right decision at the right time, it is proven to be the right move, not doing some of those things. So in terms of other things that I've learned, just go back to your original question, I've learned to rely on collaboration of those around us. There's a saying that's like, go to scripture, pray, seek wise counsel. And that's kind of, how I make any decision. So if one of those boxes aren't checked, it's not wise for me. So that's how we've made some of these things. And wise counsel, we have a great board of directors who advise us very well in some of the strategic decisions that we make. But most of the day-to-day, 99% of all the decisions are our leadership team, who we all trust, sitting in a room and making decisions which best for the company. And we always think about how it's going to impact the customer and the employee. And if we handle those, then we're handing the, handling the people element that's important. We've talked to some people that have financial backing, and we've talked to other people that have started it with, you know, $2 in their pocket and, you know, just funded things out of cash flow. How do you think it's different having an organization that has investors versus funding things out of pocket? And what advice would you have for people that are actually looking to raise money? So the risk for me to do this in the beginning was minimized by the fact that I had investors. I didn't have a ton of money to my name when we started it. And the wise thing that we did as an investor group was each one of us had to put skin in the game. So we all put money up. I put what little money I had at, in my early 30s. And that allowed us all to be on equal footing. 
And I, I think that was really important for us from the beginning. I would say, knowing what I know now, I would have sold everything to do this on my own. So what I would say to anybody that's starting a business is, if you have the means and you believe in yourself, take the risk because it's worth it, especially if you see from the 30,000 foot view, a clear path to being successful. I didn't have the foresight then. I also didn't take the risk on myself. And that's the one of the regrets I have. I don't regret my investors. I don't regret starting the business. I regret not putting everything I had into this opportunity because now it's proven to be what I hoped it had. Raising money is not the difficult part. And I sit in investor groups and things like that. And we don't look at deals and think, man, that this is a really good idea. We look at the person who's running it and say, is the person capable? So if you're the person sitting in that seat and you're capable, I'd say invest in yourself. If you are in a different situation, investors can be very important to the success of the business. They can also lead you astray. And what I would say is that some investors, at least in my limited experience, they don't necessarily have the best interest at heart of you as the individual. You do. So that's why if you have the means, I'd say bet on yourself. But also think very clearly about three, five, 10 years down the road, how you want it to look. Because those decisions that are made on the very, very beginning are going to pave the way that you get compensated down the road. Uh, I think that's a very good word there. Compensated? No, no. Um, just thinking about in the early days, what you want it to look like down the road, you know, to borrow from Covey, it's the whole begin with the end in mind. And that really kind of sets the path for you. Yeah. What kinds of things have surprised you along the way? I would say the the times when mistakes turned into opportunities, they're just clear instances where we didn't do something right. And I'm, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but I'll just kind of make it broad where we mishandle a, a customer, but those mishandlings create opportunity in how we service somebody on the back end. You know, we mess up, we own it. We're going to be the first to own it. And we're going to work as hard as we can to make up the mistake. And what that's done for us is created loyalty from the customer. And ultimately that's created more business for us. I would also say that those times when we didn't stick to our core philosophies, you know, we have plenty of them, but um, we have five main core competencies. And if we stray from those, we get off. And in a startup, there are a lot of things that you have to be reactionary on. You have a driver that quits or has to leave for a death in the family. Now we have you know, strain on the organization. We have to go out there and we have to, you know, put the COO on the road. And then I get on the road for, a, you know, a holiday weekend because we didn't think forward about holiday schedules. Those kind of missteps force us to make better decisions for the next time. So I would say that those types of lessons are vitally important, but we were learning them as we went and next holiday season is going to be better. <laughs> When you were talking about straying from your your, your core principles, I saw I, that smirk. Yeah, I, man, there are a couple of things that on a couple of occasions I've strayed and immediately regretted. 
So I decided a long time ago that we weren't going to do RFPs. We were just not going to respond to them. And on a couple of occasions, due to some kind of extenuating circumstance, I went ahead and said, okay, we're going to go ahead and participate in this RFP. And every time I've reminded myself why I made the decision not to do it in the first place, we've had two of them where we were actually selected and either the project, they decided not to do it after they'd gone through the whole selection process, or in one case, it was going to be, yeah, we're going to do it and we're going to use you, but it's actually going to be like three years from now. It's like, okay. I remember why I made this decision a long time ago. Yeah. And it's funny how you you do that and immediately you're like, man, I know this is a bad idea. Yep. But you've already started the process and you're down the road and it's like, ah. Yeah. The train it. has left the station. Yeah. If this is too personal, don't get into it. But you talked about like sometimes as the guy at the helm, when you're understaffed, you got to go hit the road and you got to pick up where there's a, a gap. What does that do to your family? Yeah, very early on, my wife knew the risk of this. And I think we kind of stacked hands and said, this is what we want to do. And, you know, this is the future that we want. My my family, um, man, they're amazing. They don't see the stress of work. And I think it's because the way that this, the nature of this business, we don't take a ton of that on with us. Does that mean that I'm not brainstorming, you know, when I'm shaving in the morning? I don't shave. I don't know why I that. <laughs> when I'm showering in the morning. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I constantly have the burden of having to help the organization stay afloat and to make bills and to pay payroll. Those were the things that I think affected the family is when I mentally wasn't there. But physically, I mean, thankfully, the businesses that we serve doesn't require a lot of attention outside of normal working hours. In the early years, I was gone a lot, just selling in other cities. But I had a supportive wife and my kids were always excited to see me when I got home, which kind of makes it fun going, you know, and coming back. But, um, you know, it was the mental game that it played on me that made it really difficult. I don't like to be unpresent. And there were times when there was a, just a burden of, are we going to, do I have to put up more money to bridge this payroll until the bank loan closes or before the next call from the investors? Those were the harder parts for me with the, the toll on the family. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Has there been something along the way that didn't work out quite like you hoped it would? Yeah. And I'm going to speak more globally on that. I think when we started the business, we believed that we'd be 25 million by now. What we didn't know was that the people that had done that successfully had done it only by acquisition or only by subcontracting on a national level. Granted, we got to some of those places, but we wanted to be an organic growth, boots on the ground, strap it up and do the hard work type of company because our P&L was supportive of that. And at the end of the day, it was the right decision. Now, do I wish we were worth more? I do, but the road that got us here was the right decision. I wish we'd have known more about this contract heavy nature of the business that has made it very difficult. You know, and it's not like the competitors are ever going to let up on it. I mean, the nature of competition is it's always going to be harder. So with people coming in the market and, and either selling out or dying, it has always created opportunities for us. But those were some of the things we just weren't aware of. And then the regulation changes. Man, responding to COVID was tricky in the beginning. 
But the resiliency of our team and the desire to service the customer allowed us to really excel during that time. But those types of, uh, man, roadblocks ultimately has built this calloused, ready to take on any challenge type of organization that I think is going to make us very successful for a long time. You talked about you would have liked to have been a $25 million company and you've looked at others, man, I, if I'm being just real honest, yeah. I, I struggle with comparison and comparison is the thief of joy. And man, I, I talk with other business owners. I look at friends that have started companies that have gotten way bigger, way faster. And I go, man, I'm kind of envious of that. And then if I really kind of pause and step back and look at it and go, you know what? I've been able to provide a great life for my family. I've gotten to enjoy the work that I'm doing most days. I think I've been able to provide a, a pretty good life for my team. You know what? We'll get there when we get there. And, and I just need to kind of enjoy this moment. Yeah. I don't know if that resonates at all, but it's good to have big dreams, but sometimes it's important just to be content. I think what you said resonates perfectly with me. And the reason being is, I think if we were worth $25 million, I wouldn't have the joys of what we have today within the organization. The team would be different. Our customers would be different. Even our location would be different. And I don't look back and regret the path that we've taken. I mean, there are plenty of small steps that were missteps, but I'm perfectly happy where we are. And I think the fleshly side of me wants to be someone who says, yeah, I created a $25 million company or man, look at how many people we have or look at the value that we've created for our investors. And I think some of those, you know, maybe they get you off target. I mean, we set out to be a good service business. And if we were larger, that might not be as easy. Or if we grow too fast, we could lose sight of that. So to your point, I, I have to pray through and remind myself daily that contentment is important and remind myself of the truths of what I have. Like you said, I provide a great living for my family. We've hired some great employees and been able to do the same for them. And we provide a really good service to the market. And man, I'm surrounded by people that I truly care about. So all of those things remind me that this is just a really fun adventure. Glad I've had it. And yeah, my desires sometimes don't necessarily match the reality that I need to live in. Yeah. Well, if somebody came to you today and said, hey, I'm thinking about starting my own business, what advice would you give them? Do it. I think the reason people don't is because they're afraid. And again, my situation was different because my risk was mitigated because of the salary that I got day one and we had money behind us. But man, that it's fulfilling to create something. And I think we're designed to create things. So I think it's important for people to take that bet on themselves and to man, and just to do it. I mean, the hardest part for any entrepreneur is having an idea, but that's where it stops. People get the idea and then they're like, I don't know what to do now. If you bet on yourself and you just figure it out. I mean, I didn't know anything about medical waste. We figured it out and it's worked out for us. So I would tell anybody that wants to start their own business to do it. <laughs> I know that's not sexy in the way that I said it, but do it. You led into that with, I think the reason that most people don't do it is because they're afraid. And I wholeheartedly agree. Did you have any fears going into this? And did any of them actually come to pass? 
I think my biggest fear was fear of regret. The fear of regret for not doing it was outweighed the fear of regret for doing it. So I don't regret the doing it. Like if I were to compare where I would be, if I had to stay in the corporate world, I would probably be living in a bigger house, probably be living in a different city, but maybe I wouldn't know my kids as well. Maybe my relationship with my wife wouldn't be as fruitful. Maybe I wouldn't have these wonderful people around me. Maybe I wouldn't like where I worked. I didn't. So this has been a very right decision for us and the family. And I think that, um, man, the leap of faith in the beginning was the right call. I don't regret it at all. And yeah, I kind of got off track and I forgot your original question. (laughs) What fears did you have going into it and have any of them come to pass? Yeah, it was just the fear of not doing it. And also failure. I was afraid that this was going to fail. And I remember at one point, one of our investors said, man, I didn't think you were going to get over the hump. I was like, what does that mean? Like, I didn't think this was going to work. But that was the kick in the pants we needed to really grind through, get the right customers, spend those longer hours and be as price or as cost conscious as we were to get there. I was severely afraid of failure. Out of curiosity, was that failure, the, the fear of failure, was that uh, I'm afraid to fail because of what it's going to do financially to me and my family? Was it more of a failure to achieve success and more from an external standpoint of how people would view you? Yeah. I mean, I would say that's a sense struggle of mine is pleasing people. So that was probably where my failure or my fear of failure rested, was on letting somebody down, including my wife. I mean, you know, that was a big gamble at a very important time in our lives. I was just had my second child when we were starting this. So there was a lot of risk taken there. But yeah, I mean, sorry, I was reminiscing on on how that decision was just impactful at the time. I mean, my career road was very bright and I'm starting it all to take a risk. And, I, and that's what I say anybody wants to start it. That, that risk was worth it. I mean, everything that was created, even the character that was built inside me to be just more prepared for any situation that comes next, I, you know, I would say that I'm, I'm ready for any challenge. I think under a corporate banner, you're a product of who they want you to be, not who you want to be. And I was able to create that in myself, which was important. That's awesome perspective. Well, anything else that you came in wanting to say that you haven't had a chance to get out yet? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I hope I described the journey that was started eight years ago, nine years ago now. Well, you know, I want to make sure that everybody at least hears from me that this was not me that did it. This was by the grace of God and uh, surrounding myself with the right people from the investors that we have to the people that we hired to even the partnerships that we forged throughout the way. I wasn't smart enough to write a contract or I didn't have the right kind of motivation to make some of these decisions that ultimately has led us here. It was the people that were around us and a healthy prayer life and home life that allowed me to balance the scales, so to speak, so that I was able to do this. And I'm thankful that we're here today on the other side of the dips that so many entrepreneurs face. It is daunting when you look at getting to profitability. And it's daunting when you realize you have to pay back your investors and you have banks to answer to and you have employees that are relying upon you and a family that needs your support. But 
I would have regretted that day if I didn't take that bet on myself. And I'm so thankful that I had a wife that supported me and that I had faith that no matter what happened, it was going to be okay. I should have asked this earlier. Some I'm kind of bouncing around, but was there a pivotal moment before you started it? Or or maybe I should say, what was that pivotal moment, that spark that said, I'm going to do this? How did the idea come about and what made you go? Yep, here we go. It was really what was happening in the organization that I was in. So being with a large national hospital group, they were trying to position people that served the organization best. And, you know, I'd done a really good job here in Dallas-Fort Worth, and they wanted somebody to take on a new market that was struggling. And it felt like I was being pushed or positioned to be in that role. And what I didn't like was the future with that organization. So that's where the networking started. And then it was a lot of prayer and it was a lot of, again, going back to that GPS, I was talking to the right people and the signs were pretty clear that this was the right time, that these were trustworthy individuals that I was eventually gonna work with. And the idea seemed legitimate. So I had no sign not to. And I think that's what my prayers were at the time. And I just don't remember well, but it was probably one of those, God, if this isn't right, just please close the door. And he didn't. So we went and man, those first three years were tough. We didn't know if we were going to get enough clients to be able to support our payroll and pay back our investors and just handle our operational burden. But we did it. And I think that at the end, when I think about the risk that we took, it was all worth it. And it's going to be fun one day to whether we're right away still a company or not, I can say, man, we, we achieved it. What's next? <laughs> I don't know, but there's a lot of ideas going on up here. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I love what we've created. I don't know if the role for me is going to always be the CEO of Redaway. I don't know if the organization that owns all of these is going to be broader, but Somebody told me once that you're as good as your number two. And, you know, thankfully there's four or five people in, within our organization that could run this probably better than I have. So I'm excited for whatever comes next for me or for them. But um, I know that what we've created is, is going to last. That's great. Man, I don't know. I don't know what's next, but we'll just uh, be prayerful. What owner founder should I interview next? I thought of a few for you, and I guess you want people that are have done it, blazed their own trail, started their own thing, and we, we want to talk to people that are still in it, the people that haven't had that mountaintop IPO, that mountaintop sold to a, a larger firm or you know big PE buyout, people that are still living it day in and day out. Yeah, I'm I'm going to have to dwell on that one for you. I got a few names, but. I'd want to get their permission before I name drop them sure. for you. But uh, there's a lot of faithful people out there trying to do it. So very I got, cool. I got some ideas for you. Awesome. Well, Justin, thanks so much for coming out. Uh, this has been really, really great conversation. I've learned a lot and uh, you've got me reflecting on a lot. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it and hopefully very helpful for you. That was Justin Smith, founder and CEO of Redaway. To learn more, visit redaway.com. 
If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 